Hello and welcome to episode 53 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray with you for our weekly wander around the global paddock that is the game of golf. There's a good chance that if you're listening to this podcast that you are, as much as I hate the term, a consumer of not only this golf media but other forms as well. Podcasts, websites, magazines, blogs, YouTube channels, you name it. There's an almost endless pool of, much as I also hate this term, content to be had. But who's bringing it to you? Do they have an agenda or indeed any actual training in the business of gathering and disseminating information? Does it matter? Does the world need people like me and our guest today, Bunkered Magazine UK digital editor Michael McEwen? Lots of big and interesting questions and we'll explore a number of them when Michael joins us in just a moment. But before we cross to Scotland and that discussion, let me bring in my co-host, a man who's been suspiciously quiet on Twitter in recent days, Adrian Logue. Logue, are you up to something? There was a major on. There were bunkers in the, bunkers in the rough. We heard nary a peep <laughs> from you. What's going on? Uh, I, I was watching the women's major, the P- PGA, quite enjoyed that. Ronamic looked a lot better thought, than some <laughs> of the other major the venues we'd had recently. It was a lot wider and, you know, there were still bunkers in the rough, but it uh, it had a bit of native area there as well. And I really enjoyed watching that on TV over the weekend. So, uh, But, yeah, I was quite sorry. Apologies, no. No, no, no. I just wondered whether you were I, up to something. Did you miss me? I kind of did a bit, although I must admit I didn't spend a huge amount of time on Twitter myself over the weekend. I was busy moving house and doing a few other things. So uh, there we go. Uh, let's come to today's guest. Michael McEwen is the digital editor of UK-based magazine Bunkett, as I said. He's the host of their recently launched podcast of the same name. Last week, he wrote a piece that caught my eye about the role of media and journalists in golf, which included the following two paragraphs. The world needs journalists now more than ever, and by journalists, I mean actual journalists, not wee Stevie who started a blog and writes for fun as and when it suits him. I mean- Why are you looking at me? I enjoy cooking, (laughs) but I'm not a chef, he says. Journalists exist to challenge, inform, and report. That requires a particular skill set, learned and perfected over time, just like any other vocation. Nobody is claiming it's the world's most noble profession. It's not as though it saves lives, but that's not its purpose. It exists to broaden minds, and now more than ever, it's under threat. Big statements, big ideas, and as regular listeners know, touching on one of my favourite topics, the role of media in golf. So, Michael kindly agreed to join us today to expand on some of the thoughts from his piece. He's on the digital blower now. Michael, welcome. Thanks for taking some time. Gentlemen, how are you? Thanks for having me on. No, not at all. It's uh, it's good to be here. Can we get straight to some of the big stuff? Do you really like cooking? <laughs> I do, actually. I'm terrible at it, as my wife would probably attest. But, yeah, I, I enjoy it. It's therapeutic, if nothing else. <laughs> and sustains life, by the sound of it, because you're still with us, which is uh, fantastic. What prompted this piece, mate? Why? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's just the, the last few months in lockdown, uh, as, as you've seen... With the, the COVID pandemic, obviously jobs have been a threat and we've seen a lot of jobs go in the media industry in the UK over the, the last six, seven months. The furlough scheme that's been very successful at keeping people in work is about to end and now we're starting to see the the end game, if you like, for a lot of the big media organisations. So they're starting to look towards the future and in a lot of cases that's basically meaning that they're, they're cutting their cloth, they're they're doing away with what they feel are, are non-essential personnel. And in a lot of cases, that means, you know, people who've specialised in a particular subject for a long time. And that by specialist subject, I don't necessarily mean someone who is a sports writer. I'm talking about uh, a granular definition of that. So someone who specialises in a niche sport, such as golf. We saw a popular golf magazine in the UK, Golf World, closed down recently. Uh, it was folded apparently into today's golfer another title in the same publishing house but that was a really popular magazine 
uh, for me, it was the best magazine in the UK, out with my own. Um, it was the, the best golf title in the country, and it's, it's no more. Uh, Women in Golf, that's another magazine that's decided to go digital only, uh, obviously covering a very important part of the game. You know, Women's Golf is getting more attention, but there you go. There's a magazine in the UK that's now gone that was serving that, that very demographic. And the Herald newspaper in my hometown of Glasgow recently dispensed with its golf correspondent for the first time in living memory. That's a newspaper that's been going over 200 years, mm -hmm. and there it is now with a, a golf correspondent because, well, I, I genuinely can't figure it out. But, yeah, that all those things really got me thinking, um, and, yeah, I decided to put those thoughts down on paper. Mm -hmm. Is this not just a business reality? Have we just not moved into a new technological era where newspapers and well particularly newspapers has been the training ground of journalists or as i prefer yeah, to call there's them definitely an element of that i think that newspapers as a in broad terms haven't really moved into the digital age well enough and certainly initially they didn't move into it fast enough and then when they did they moved into it with no real idea of how to get the most out of it i think most newspaper chiefs looked at the internet initially with complete fear it was a case of you know, giving away news, information, opinion, reviews, all that stuff completely for free. And it terrified them. You know, it was it was new media. It was it was scary to them because they were used to doing things a particular way. And to be honest, having a monopoly on the market for the longest time. So that doesn't mean though that necessarily that the people who are being most affected by it didn't know what they were doing with it and didn't have a lot to offer in that realm. I just think that a lot of these golf writers and correspondents that have been let go have so much to offer, whether it's in print, whether it's online, whether it's on platforms such as these, podcasts or vlogs or whatever. But because of harsh business realities and unfortunately poor leadership from the very top, they're not going to get that platform unless they push it on their own. There's, it's like a hairball. There's, there's multiple threads to it. Why is Why are you and I, Michael better to disseminate information than Adrian, who's not working media, but from time to time pens brilliant pieces about a topic that interests him. I don't think it's necessarily so much that we're, we're better placed to do it, but this is something that I've been working towards for as long as I can remember. You know, I have been uh, an advocate of journalism, more so specifically than golf writing, but I've been a, an advocate and a follower and a devotee a student of journalism for as long as I can remember. Uh, it's all I've ever wanted to do. And, you know, I, it's, it's like I said in the piece, you know, you can have a hobby and an interest in something. And quite often that can be great. There's a lot of people out there who have so much to offer who haven't had the opportunity. But equally, when you spend so much time learning the right ways to do things, and more importantly, the responsible way to do things, I think that just elevates your interest in something above that interest and creates uh, essentially a vocation out of it. That's certainly the way I feel about it. That's what I try to bring. I mean, I could go on, you know, every time I put pen to paper or pick up the, the laptop, you know, I could vent and steam and say the first thing that's into my head and just allow streams of consciousness to come out. But I believe, you know, rightly or wrongly, that over time, I've not, I've certainly not perfected it, but I've honed my skills and I've learned that there's more to journalism than just having thoughts and opinions and being able to put words together in a row. There's a responsibility, as I say, that comes with it and something that, you know, that, that's only learned through time and experience. So by all means, I'm, I'm all for people joining in and getting involved in conversations, but that's not where it should start and end as far as I go. 
Logue, what's your take? Um, well, there's a lot to unpack there. Mm. I, I, I think, first of all, just I, I want to go back to newspapers and those big old media organisations and, and what they're doing uh, to try and survive now. now? And, and their reaction mm. is, is to get rid of some of these specialist roles. And to get rid of news, actually, and just to become opinion Mm-hmm. Pieces for the most part. That's most right. newspapers have turned into opinion. And they're trying to struggle and they're trying to transition into digital obviously. Trying to shout louder than everybody else is, is the idea. That's right. Yeah, the reporting side of it, which I know you value very highly, um, is is less highly valued with that. And uh, and and to me that's uh, I think something that sets apart journalists from hobbyists in this area is there's uh, you don't necessarily have to be first. You don't necessarily have to be unique in your opinion. You kind of have to be right. Uh, and At least defensible. Def- yeah, ex- indeed, yeah. And uh, there, there's a line in Michael's piece which uh, really drove it home for me is this line, journalists exist to challenge, inform and report. And I, I thought that that's a, that's a wonderful little mm-hmm. summary there. And I'm, I'm lucky enough with the pieces I write that I can bounce them off you and you can point things out to me and I learn a lot from that. Um, so that's uh, – but I can see in uh, other other people who write online that I enjoy, I enjoy their work, but there is a bit of an unevenness to it often um, because I think they're, they're not getting the benefit of um, input from someone like you. So, yeah, that that's something I find interesting. But with, with these big news organisations – just getting back to that for a minute. It just shows a lack of imagination, I think, is their their reaction to, to cut jobs in these specialist areas. Um, it, it's just there's no imagination to it. It's like the accountants have come in and just decided this is how we solve this. We'll get rid of that. Is that, is that how it seems to you, Michael? Yeah, that's absolutely dead on, 100%. I mean, I, I get it in, in some respects, but... Equally, I, I can't help but feel that the more unique voices are the ones that are going to stand out in, in a lot of ways, certainly in newspapers. You know, if you have someone who is capable of reporting on six or seven different sports but without a specialist knowledge, then what sets your title apart? You know, what does your title have to offer that other magazines or newspapers with exactly the same personnel have to offer? Whereas if you're prepared to take a punt and just say, look, we're going to sacrifice being a catch-all for everyone. So... We might not cover badminton or judo or, you know, our, our footy coverage might not be as deep. Our rugby coverage might not be as deep. Our cricket coverage might not be as deep. But see, if you want golf and, you know, you're in Scotland, the home of golf, then we're the place to come because we have informed specialist people. We are investing and, you know, what? we're trusting those journalists who have that specialist knowledge to bring the goods to the table. Mm. If you can create something like that, then I think that sets you apart. And that gives people a reason to want to buy your newspaper over another one. So it's quite sad to see the, the demise of specialist writers. Um, I, I do get the business and the economics of it. But, yeah, it's just, you know, how, how do you tell the difference from one newspaper to the next? Yeah. You know, there has to be something to set you apart. As Mike Clayton often points out, though, uh, and this is, this is also true, Michael, even though it seems like it's counterintuitive, there's probably never been a better time for golf writing or to find as much good golf writing as you can find in this day and age. He often points to Jeff Shackelford's blog, which makes a lot of sense. There's some fantastic stuff there. Alistair Tate has started a blog, which is fantastic. The world is poorer for John Huggan no longer being in Scotland on Sunday every week. 
but he still finds limited places to hear Huggy's voice, which is a shame. I think he's an important voice in the game. But there is lots and lots of good writing available, isn't there, Michael? What's the difference between good writing and actual journalism? Yeah, there certainly is. There's lots of good writing out there. The problem is that it's not as accessible. You have to really go hunting to find it. And when golf is in this growth phase, as it should be at the moment, I think golf is always going to be in a growth phase. It's always going to be a sport that's looking to add participation. It's not like you know rugby union or, in your guys' case, rugby league or, or Aussie footy. It's not like soccer where there are just naturally going to be people who gravitate towards it. Golf is always looking to bring the audience to to the sport. And without having that, the, that quality of reporting, even in some cases reporting full stop, right in front of people's faces, then it's going to struggle. You know, people who might be interested in golf aren't going to dig way, beno- way beneath the surface to find that great content. So for us guys who are already in the sport and love it, we know the right places to go. It's still sometimes difficult to find. I mean, there is loads of it, but it's still sometimes difficult to find that really great piece that gets you. But how's it, how is it for somebody who's brand new to the sport? You know, they have to really invest and be committed enough to go and find that content. And I find that a bit of a shame when it could be right there under their noses. There's also two types of golf coverage, isn't there? There's coverage of the game more broadly, which includes the industry, the business. You did that fabulous series of pieces on the golf courses in Glasgow. The, I think there were six with the earmarked for closure. Uh, terrific coverage about that. And then there's the what most people probably think about as golf coverage, what's Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy and Tommy Fleetwood doing. And they're two quite distinct things, aren't they? I mean, you could send a general sports reporter to a golf tournament and get decent coverage. If you send a golf rider to a golf tournament, you get better coverage, even for the person reading it who's not already a golfer. That's a real skill, I think, Michael. Yeah, 100% it is. And, you know, for example, one of my interests out with golf is long-distance running. You know, I'm into marathon running. I'm very interested in, you know, how the best in the world become the best in the world. And I've written a book about the London Marathon. However, I'm the wrong person to go and tell you about Eliud Kipchoge breaking two hours. You know, I, I can't bring the granular knowledge that I think a lot of people still want and demand to these incredible feats of endurance and these incredible sporting achievements. I can't do it for athletics. You know, I, I know where my skill set is. I know the wheelhouse that I should be operating in. And so, yeah, I I could tell you that he ran it in under two hours. I could give you a rough idea as to how he did it. But beyond that, I'm bluffing. You know, I'm I'm, making it up as I go along. And that's, people deserve better. And to be honest, the athletes deserve better than that as well. So that's, that's certainly part of it. As far as, you know, having two different types of golf content go, yeah, 100%. I think that anyone can write about Tiger Woods and winning the Masters, you know, in 2019. You just have to look at the the sheer volume of pieces that were written to know that that is something that a lot of people can turn their hands to. But who do I gravitate towards? You know, I gravitate towards the guys who've been covering Tiger for years, you know, whether it's Michael Bamberger or John Feinstein or guys like that. that. That's the places that I'm going first because I know that I'm going to get a little bit more in terms of that deep dive into how he did it, why it's significant, as opposed to here's what he shot in his fourth round. Yeah, although interestingly, I thought 
the best piece written about Tigers Masters win last year was Meg McLaren's. Oh, <laughs> a, a, a player, a player who has a special gift for uh, for writing, but she brought all of those things, that granular knowledge, uh, all of that stuff that you're talking about. Comes Logan, I think you're about to say something. As a consumer, what, what's your take? Are we just journos who think we're more important than we are? Do we think our role is more important than it actually is? I, I don't know. It, I think it's very important, not just in – I mean, just to, to briefly go to a politics a politics analogy. Um, I th- there was a lot of uh, conjecture whether they really should have a journalist running the presidential debates. And again, but I, I just go back to Michael's sentence from that piece: journalists exist to challenge, inform, and report. And a journalist can challenge those candidates in a way that a normal moderator isn't going to be able to to do. Like they can, they should they should be expected to look at falsehoods that are said and and challenge those even more than the opposition candidate would. So there's, as a consumer of that sort of, uh, obviously the latest presidential debates have been complete rubbish. But, um, <laughs> it was a dumpster fire, as the kids so, had to say, wasn't it? So not a great example. But uh, that is the role of the journalist in those cases. It's not just to be the person the, the person speaking the questions. It's to actually prod and... and uh, so why would that challenge. be important in golf? Who are we challenging in golf? Surely we're all my, on the same team. We're all part of team golf. Well, see, my observation it being in media centres at tournaments is that you've got you've got some of the people there who are reporters who just look at the leaderboard that's on their little screen in front of them and they see a story emerging because somebody's putting birdies up on the screen. Um, and they'll, they'll start asking around the media centre, what's the story with this guy? And then they'll, they'll report on that round of golf um that's that's one thing like you you can turn turn that's to your that gen- that's your general sports reporter i could go to a football match and give you a 400 word pricey of it that'll tell you what happened exactly no analysis nothing of any great value but it'll tell you roughly what happened exactly and then you've got the guys who are sitting there who've been out on the course they've they've observed they've you know tried to get interviews they've been talking to managers they've been <laughs> <laughs> they've been understanding what's going on they're taking a look back and look at the bigger picture, but then seeing a more interesting story that's unfolding within the tournament. And it's a it's a week-in, week-out slog reporting on these things. And you don't get Tiger winning the Masters every week. You've got to find these other interesting stories from week to week. And I think that's the, the, what the really good journalists do. Um, and you mentioned a couple of great ones there, Michael, with um, you know, Bamberger and Feinstein. I, I enjoy whatever Bradley Klein writes as well. And, uh, you know, during this time when there's been a little less golf for him to write about, and I think a little less golf that he's interested about writing about, he's written about his isolation in uh, uh, COVID isolation. And um, that's been really interesting. There's a there's a really good newsletter you can subscribe to from that. I really enjoy Jaime Diaz's writing when he when he What a shame. When he, he does stuff. When he was next <laughs> to the world of print. What a shame. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, television's not his medium. Yep. Podcasts aren't his medium either. Jaime's a great guest. We've had him on State of the Game previously. He's a fantastic guest with great stories to tell. Yep. But he's in the wrong role doing that podcast with Chambly. Although I will say, I don't listen to it all the time, he does exactly what you're talking about, Logue. He challenges Chambly. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is important. The temptation is always simple. Chambly's the big Golf Channel star. I'm second fiddle here. My job is to just nod yes to anything that he says. But Jaime sort of doesn't, which brings us neatly, I guess, to a question, Michael, about what is the media, as you like to call it, (laughs) 
Um, we're all <laughs> in the habit of blaming the media for anything and everything, aren't we? All the media these days. If you've got a phone in your pocket, you're media, right? If you've got a Twitter account or a Facebook account, you're media, aren't you? I get the sense that most people don't realise that they are part of the media. Yeah, yeah. It's, in fact, if I could just pick up on what you said about Brandel Shambly there, you're quite right. You know, Jaime is really good at challenging um, Brandel. And the thing about Brandel is, and I think this is why he's so good and he's a great example of how to do the job properly in terms of analysis, that he, or sorry, analysis, I should say. Did you say uh, analysis? Brandel- That's a fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it you know should what? be a word. It should be a word. It, it should be. It's like my, my friend's dad who insists that the word should be ambiguos- ambiguosity as opposed to ambiguity. And he's quite right. He's <laughs> <It is> quite right. <laughs> it's, been it's been a long weekend. I've just written analyzer, and it, there's a reason it's not a word. It doesn't look right when you write it down, I'll tell you. It's almost as good as apparel. <laughs> apparel, yeah. The, the, the reason that the Brandel's so good as an analyst is because he brings knowledge. He's, he always backs up his opinion. It's always informed. So no matter what he says, you have to go... Yeah, I, I know where he's coming from with it. Now, he's not always right, but what he always is, is informed. And unfortunately, that's missing from a lot of media at the moment, is that ability to provide an informed and well-articulated answer or argument. So that's one of the things that I, I find quite sad because, there, look, I got into writing about golf and writing about sport because I love it. You know, I'm a huge sports fanatic. I'm a golf fanatic. But... Equally, for the job that I do, I'm a journalist first and foremost, so what I have to do is park the part of me that's the fan when it comes to doing my job, because I can't do my job properly if I let bias or partisanship come into it. You know, that, that's a, It's a really hard thing to do, and it's something you have to learn and almost train yourself to do. I'd love to jump around in the, the media centre and to celebrate when I see something that really excites me. And yeah, there are golfers out there that I root for more than I root for others. There are things that I know about people on tour that I can't write. I'd like to, but I can't because I understand that that might not be the, the, the best thing for me to put out there and it would be wrong for my job and future career prospects. So all of that comes from the, the responsibility that I'm talking about. So being informed and being responsible, it's almost like the first two rules of being a journalist before you can even string a sentence together. Um, as to your point about you know what, what constitutes media, these days, yeah, I mean, everyone is playing a role in this new media that we've got in terms of social platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and so on. But I almost don't like the fact that media is in there as a term. You know, I, I'd rather call them social platforms than social media. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're interaction platforms. They're basically online bars where we can all go and hang out and either show our favorite pictures to one another, as you would with Instagram, or have short, snappy little arguments with one another, as you would with Twitter, or show people what you've been cooking, as you would do with Facebook, or you know, brag about your holidays. I don't think media is the right term to use for these platforms. They're, they might be getting used by media professionals and media organisations, but it's a misappropriation of the term. And what, you know, we're getting this a lot more these days. You know, People misusing words and so on. I mean, I've got a real bee in my bonnet about I think in Glasgow or Scotland, where if someone goes and buys a round, he's a legend. It's like, no, you're not. You're, you stood your round. Well done. I'd expect you to. <laughs> or when a, a player holds a putt. You know, a, a player response a, to somebody buying putt. you a drink, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rare occurrence. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, so someone don't let it go to your head. You know, know, just... They're called brave. It's like, you're not brave. Unless you're taking shelter from enemy fire while <laughs> holding that putt. That's not a brave putt. 
But the worst one of the lot is when people are starting to describe themselves now as citizen journalists because they go out and they take a picture of a police cordon at the bottom of their street and they put it online and basically entice big news organisations in the UK to ask if they can use it with their permission and a credit. And from that, they decide they're a citizen journalist. You're not. You're a guy with a phone who's taking a picture. doesn't make you a journalist. It really and truly doesn't. So... Yeah, there's there's so much misappropriation of words. You know, I managed to do it in describing Brandel right at the top of this little bit. <laughs> you made up your <laughs> you own words. People, people use words wrongly, and I think that is creating a lot of the confusion around what it is to be a journalist and what's, what it's, more importantly, what doesn't constitute a journalist. It's our own fault, though, isn't it, Michael? We've done that to ourselves, haven't we, over the years? Us who are part of the old media started all of that. It's us in the media who've called people like Tiger Woods brave and courageous for his comeback and all that sort of stuff. That's a real... Oh, yeah. That's the trope yeah, that we I've, used I've to dish I've done it up. myself, and, you know, it's, as, I, as I get older, you know, I'm mid-30s now, and as I get older, I look back at some of the stuff that I wrote in my early days, and I just cringe. But I'd like to think that's just, you know, maturing and evolving as a, a person and as a professional that... Jesus, I mean, if I, if I look back at some of the stuff that I wrote when I was 20 and thought it was my best work, then I'd be absolutely deeply ashamed. So, yeah, I've got no issue with looking back and going that mm-hmm. I've made mistakes and I should have, you know, described a particular moment or occasion better. Now, that's that's always going to be the case, I hope. Now, I'd like to think that when I'm late 50s, heading towards my, well, actually, the way it's going in the UK, it'll be late 60s, heading towards retirement, then, um, you know, I'll, I'll still be learning and evolving you, you'll need to have a job before you can retire michael so let's not get too far <laughs> ahead of ourselves uh just uh just yet all of that of course what we're talking about here is the internal golf media in many ways you know the likes of huggy and shackleford and jaime diaz and brandel chamberlain and all of those sorts of things and that's all kind of important that, but that's golfers talking to golfers is that what's the role of golf media in this is one of the other topics we love to bang on about changing the image of golf amongst the non-golfing public and this ties directly to that story of yours i mentioned about the six public courses in glasgow that were under threat because that's happening worldwide that's happening here in australia lots of people are looking at golf courses going hmm that's a big slab of green space i don't play golf therefore i don't use it perhaps we should just can the golf and then i can use it what's golf to do about that and what's the role of the golf media in that I think as long as golf media can show that it's trying to be progressive, the extent to which it is, is always going to be subjective. But as long as it can try to show that it's being progressive, then it's going to be hard for people to take issue with it. And I'd like to think that I'm part of the the newer generation of golf media. You know, fair enough, I've been doing it 16 years. But as I said, I'm still only in my mid-30s. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think that I can bring a, a, a different perspective I'm not saying it's a better perspective. I'm not saying it's a worse perspective, but I think I can bring a, a, a different perspective that people of my generation can hopefully relate to a little bit better. So that's why when I am when I do write opinion pieces for Bunkered, I, I try to relate it back to me in the here and now as opposed to things that I did when I was little or what I aspire to be. It's, okay, so here's something that happened to me recently. You know, Here's the context of it. And I, hopefully people like me of the same age can look at it and go, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. So, yeah, you just, you know, I, I hate cliches, but you kind of just have to roll with the punches, don't you? And evolve with the times. You know, there was a great line that 
the former chief executive of the Scottish, as it was, the Scottish Golf Union, Hamish Gray, and I apologise because he's a Kiwi, but a great line that he used a long time ago when he was talking about the issues facing golf clubs in the country, and he said that what golf clubs have to do, first and foremost, is match consumer behaviour. And I just thought that was such a, a really cool, astute observation because when you get used to doing something a particular way for a long period of time, then you forget that time is still ticking. And very quickly, the thing that was modern becomes outdated, outmoded, old-fashioned. So, yeah, I, I guess that's how I feel with it. It's just to, you have to continue to evolve and be present enough in the moment to understand what's going on and what people are demanding. Listen to their demands and don't dig your heels in. You know, God, if, if people want you to do things differently and there's enough demand for it that it's not just a few angry voices on Twitter, then you've got to give it consideration. You, you, you have to be prepared to, you know, teach old dogs new tricks and change your spots. And I've just rattled off another two cliches there, which I'm really, really upset about. <laughs> well, surely, surely, Michael, people looking to get into golf have to conform with golf, don't they? They have to learn the rules. They have to learn how to dress properly in the golf club. No hoodies. No hoodies. Yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> well, that's a prime example of the sort of nonsense that you do get, isn't it? Did I, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't follow Hoodie Gate over the weekend, but for those who might have missed it, Tyrrell Hatton was wearing a hoodie mm -hmm. during the one, the... the BMW PGA at uh, Wentworth. Did it in fine style too. I actually watched that uh, last night. Uh, terrific player and well done to him. But there was a whole big kerfuffle, wasn't there, Michael, about the fact that he was wearing a hoodie, which is not standard golf attire as we would expect. Who was driving that? I note James Corrigan tweeted that he had gladly not written anything about it uh, in his coverage during the week. Who was on about it? And is this part of the – James Corrigan is just thought of as part of the media. He's not really. He's a much he's a much weightier uh, personality in the media than most who would have been writing about the BMW P. Yeah, you know, it doesn't surprise me that Jamie didn't write about it, and I'm quite glad that he didn't. You know, he's uh, – I can just imagine him rolling his eyes at, at the, the sheer level of coverage that he was getting, and I, I get it. You know, I tend to agree. I – at first, when I saw a lot of people complaining, saying, you know, why are there so many people upset about Tyrrell Hatton wearing a hoodie? I hadn't seen any of it. So out of morbid curiosity, I typed in Hatton hoodie into a Twitter search and just the stuff that came up. There wasn't really any particularly big organisation or high profile individual having a go. There was just it was just a lot of noise chatter. from a lot of people, you know, general chatter, chatter. And I just thought, how sad is that? You know, it's it's a hoodie. Who cares? I, I genuinely couldn't care less. You know, on the con, actually, you know, I, I probably could care in the sense that I quite admire the, the just the, the sheer balls to go and do it, to say, you know, you, you expect me to wear a polo shirt, but it's cold today and I'd rather wear this. I, I, I like looking cool. You know, it's it's an old saying, but if you if you feel good and you, you know, feel that you're looking good, if you feel just as, as long as you feel good about yourself, there's a chance that you're going to play better because of it. I've yet to meet a golfer who's played well, hating what he's wearing and feeling uncomfortable. You know, it just doesn't happen. So that's just a big fuss over nothing, really, wasn't it? Oh. Yes, absolutely. If, if he wants to wear a hoodie, crack on. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting what you said, Logue, because about you know having to conform to golf as a, as a newcomer, because we don't talk about conforming when it comes to really anything else. You don't say you have to conform to become a, a, a theatre goer, you know, or to to get into this 
particular you know music scene or to start following football but with golf it's almost like demanded that you know the etiquette that you dress a particular way that you don't you don't let the game down that you fall in line with it and i just think that's really sad you know i i don't want that for the game i just want people to pick up the clubs start swinging and if they like it they like it great if they don't that's fine but i want them to experience it and so many people are put off right at the very start by this perception of what golf is and a lot of it is uh self-inflicted black eye on the game yeah it's the they're the wrong things about golf to cherish aren't they you know i think i wrote a piece once called you know yeah call me a purist but not in the way most people mean it it's used as an insulting golf oh he's a traditionalist Mm. well i'm not a traditionalist it's been weaponized yeah that's exactly right but in fact the the things about the game that are, are, are fantastic are that it's a personal challenge and that you learn very early on that you can cheat if you like but you really unlike most others what you really do only cheat yourself because there's an achievement in shooting 78 that you don't have if you really shot 81 Mm-hmm. But you wrote down seventy eight, and you see the numbers. You're being very specific about those numbers. So. Yeah, there was no. I'm only kidding. Uh, so <laughs> that, those are the things I think. You know, the Bobby Jones. You might as well accuse a man yeah. of not robbing a bank. That sort of stuff is on. It strikes me, Adrian. One of the one of the issues there. This is probably not so much on the media, although it does play into that in some ways. It's about golf's image problem, and that's tied up with the media. What they have in Scotland and what we have here in Australia is a bad business model for golf. The membership model is a bad business model, isn't it? You've got the lunatics running the asylum in a lot of ways. And so somebody who is new to golf goes to a golf club for the first time, and what they meet is a whole bunch of members who like it there. That's why they're there. And they insist on this conforming idea, and it does put a lot of people off. I'm not sure what the answer to that might be. Sandy Jamison's one club is one answer to that, but it needs to be broader than one course in Victoria, doesn't it? It's an unusual business model, isn't it, where you you take a – like 10-pin bowling uh, for comparison, where the vast majority of their revenue is coming from people just turning up mm. and playing. Beginners, people who are advanced, people who have been playing all their lives. That's right. So everybody's money's the same. And and there's it's completely flipped where there'd be some very small percentage, like 5 or 10% of people, I guess, who would be quote-unquote sort of members or they've got a yearly pass or something to the bowling alley and mm-hmm. they get like a subscription revenue out of Discount, those people. So- but golf clubs are completely flipped the other way, where the vast majority of their revenue comes from membership subscription fees. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it is odd. It, it, you're in it for all your life when you're a member of a golf club, when you take up golf as a mm, kid. It's a huge So, you don't really realise how unusual no. it is. But golf is kind of unique in one way, and it's it's another one of these things that tries to create a sense of exclusivity. Um, and, it, like, you can... You can buy an iPhone, and that's the best iPhone anyone in the world can buy. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter how much that's money right. you've got. They made a million that of them. Technology is completely democratized. Yep. Like, you can, nobody can buy a better iPhone than you. Whereas with golf, there's there's the situation where you can actually buy a better membership than somebody else, and and so it's one Not of the me personally, you one of the things. Broader sense, it's one of the that's right, exactly. It's one of the things that have status associated with it, and it's holding on to that, and I think it perceives that as something of value um, in the way golf markets itself. But perhaps that's becoming a bit old-fashioned. The conformity thing is interesting, isn't it? That's true of perhaps more subtle ways, but of just about every facet of life, isn't it? Right from your workplace through to the golf club. Conformity is demanded at almost almost everywhere, isn't it, Michael? Really? Um we see this bob up, you know, on a slow news day, the easiest thing you can do is find someone with 15 earrings to say they can't get a job. 
Yeah, yeah, to a point. I, I, I know the point you're making, but I feel like golf is very, mm. very specific about how they want you to behave and, to be honest, what type of person they, they want you to be when you come to the club. And you know the, the way that they market themselves, certainly over here in, in the UK, you know, a bit of a generalisation, I know, but the way they market themselves is horrendous. You know, I could go onto any golf club's website right now and I'm pretty confident that I would have to, first of all, click several times to find how much a membership's going to be. And when I do find the price, they're going to tell me how much it is for a year. But, you know, that's just not the way to do it. You know, they should be looking at what gyms are doing. And if I go onto a gym's website, for example, I could choose any gym in the UK, and I'm pretty confident the reverse will be true, that I'll go on, and it'll be on their homepage how much it's going to cost me, not per year, but per month. Now, over 12 months, the two sums could be exactly the same, but the perception is... Well, you know, £40 a month sounds a hell of a lot better than that sum multiplied by 12. So they're not really doing a great sales job of themselves. And I think that just comes down to having the wrong people in the most important positions. More than ever, golf clubs, I think, need to start behaving as businesses. And it's frustrating when you think that there are guys out there shipping TVs and, you know, department stores with business degrees that can't get jobs business management degrees who can't get jobs but the guy that's been at the club for 50 years is just promoted into that position voted elected into that you know treasurer role or business management role he doesn't really know what he's doing he's but he gets a nice blazer out of it and he's absolutely chuffed to bits but when it comes to actually sustaining the club and putting in the foundations for the future doesn't have a first clue what he's doing. But also, I think most of them don't care because they're not thinking about the future. They're thinking about the here and now. They don't care how their club's going to be when they're long gone. So I think it's really sad because we're, we're losing a hell of a lot of people to the game. There's a lot of potential would-be golfers out there who will never be anything more than that simply because of the way golf clubs are and how they market themselves. Mm, really yeah. sad. It, well, it is. It's sad for the game and it's sad for all those people, as you say, who could be golfers and find something. I mean, there's kind of two types of golfers in the world. Well, there's two types of people, golfers and non-golfers. That's how the world divides. You're going to further subdivide that. And within golf, yep. there are golfers who aren't really golfers too. They play golf and they might play a lot of golf, but they're not really golfers in the sense that it's any more important to them than watching the footy on a Friday night necessarily. They know their golf. Yeah. They don't necessarily yeah, that's right. know they, golf. They, yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not even yeah. going that. There's nothing wrong with that. They, they, can, they consume the game the way they want to. But for all of those people for whom golf could be a much more meaningful thing, I think you and I are two of those, and we know lots of those sorts of people, a lot of them, the game doesn't find them, or when they find the game, it rejects them, and the game misses out uh, because of that because those people aren't a part of it. Does this not point directly in a lot of ways, Michael, to the job of the golf media in this sense? And I'm not sure we've done a great job of this historically, though I do think the, you know, everyone's got a podcast now. <laughs> For a while there, it was blogs. This has seen a lot more people in golf media questioning the way golf as an industry does work. I'm not sure that was the case for a long time. That's important, isn't it? Golf needs to be its own harshest critic. It's easy to get together and say, look, there's a hundred of us here. We must be going well and doing everything right and slap each other on the back. That's not what golf needs. And that is the role of the journalist, is it not? Yeah, exactly that. Because a, a journalist can can hopefully, if they're doing their job properly, bring, bring a, a a wider, more subjective view of what's going on. And that's, that's kind of rule 101. I think that 
ultimately, yeah, things are starting to change. You're right. Everyone's got a podcast. <laughs> I've got you know, three, we were so four, slow. actually. I've got four. <laughs> so there you go. Aren't we? I mean, we, we were so slow in getting off the mark with ours. It was, and uh, to be honest, I don't really know the reasons for it. I guess maybe we just sat back and, and watched what other people were doing. We had other things going on. We're a small team yeah. anyway. Is it a we, commercial we, uh, venture, Michael, the podcast? Podcasting is an interesting what? form of media. Is it a commercial yeah. venture for Bunkett? I'd like to think it will be in time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, how I think everyone would like that from their podcast. You know, even hobbyists want to make money out of it. Um, so ultimately, yeah, that's that's what we would like to do. We, we are a commercial organisation. You know, un, unlike many other news outlets or some other news outlets, we're not state funded in any kind of way, shape, or form. We're, we're in the business of making money. And, and that changes the parameters, doesn't it? That That's the conundrum yeah. for media generally, is that once you of have customers who are paying you, your agenda has to change. Yeah. I, you know, the, the rule, the first rule for us as a business, not, not specifically me as a journalist, the first rule for us as a business is always going to be to make money. You know, ultimately, that that's the goal, because if we don't make money, then I, I can't put a roof over my family's head. But, yeah, w- within that, there are, there come certain responsibilities, but I'd like to think that if we do our job well and we do it the right way, we do it with a bit of integrity and do it as informed as possible, then ultimately the 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 what's the right word for this? The the collateral benefit to the game can be that more people start to pay attention to the right parts of the game. You know, I, I, I don't want to sit and you know, discuss turtle hatton's hoodies until the cows come home. Equally, you know, I, I'm not out there to put up the 22 hottest picks of the latest Instagram person who also just so happens to play a little bit of golf. You know, that's that's not really the purpose. We can make money in other ways. So as long as we can do that and bring people to the game and show them how good a game it can be, then creating golfers can be a good spin-off of what we do. It's not our number one objective. We're not in this to make more golfers, but it can be a nice added bonus of us doing our first and foremost job, which is to make money. Yes, tackling the big issues as always here at Good Good. And in the spirit of a discussion about media and advertising and the whole model of how we get our information, allow me to briefly interrupt with a message from our sponsor, thegolfsociety.com.au. Now, regular listeners will know that the Golf Society is an online apparel and accessory store, but what you may not realise is that they're in the midst of a rather significant change of seasons sale. Shirts, pants, shorts, shoes and more, there's some great bargains to be had from some of the best names in the game, including Jade Blinderberg and Ralph Lauren in apparel, and Puma, Under Armour and more in shoes. There's a $25 discount for Talking Golf listeners on their first purchase. To make use of that, navigate to thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf, just the one G in talking golf, and look your best on course this spring. Now, back to big media and what it means for golf. Here's a serious question on a sort of a, asked in a somewhat lighthearted way. You don't want to talk about Tyrrell Hatton's hoodie until Adidas comes along and says to you, we want to sponsor the Bunkered Podcast and we'd like you to talk about the hoodie on this week's show. Now, you might have been planning to talk about it anyway, Michael, but you might have been planning not to. And this is the legitimate conundrum that every proper media organisation faces, is it not? You've got two customer bases. You've got your reader slash listener, and then you've got the people who are paying for it all. And that's the trick of trying to produce yeah. good media. Yeah, that's exactly it. And 
it would be nice to think that you can just go through life without sacrificing a little bit of your own morals and such like, but the world doesn't cut that way. It's not a perfect world by any stretch of the imagination. And yeah, ultimately, he who pays the piper will always call the tune. But the tune that you can play can be what you want it to be. You can still maintain a little bit of control. You know, there have been a lot of golfers that have been hugely successful that I would rather not have written about. But when they have that success, what I do, for example, if a, a golfer is successful but I have a particular reason not to want to shower them with praise, I'll just stick to the facts. You know, I will tell people everything they need to know about this person in terms of factually what they've achieved, where they're from, what their background is, but I'm not about to resort to dripping hyperbole to say that they're this, that, or the other. So, yeah, there are always outs, if you want to call them that. But, um, yeah, it's always a fine balance that you have to strike. It's a tough one. I listened to a great podcast, which I think is restarting this month from your part of the world, not quite in Scotland, but in the UK, John on the Future Noughts, John Richardson. Ah, yep. And one of his uh, co-hosts, I can't remember if it was Ed or Mark, where they're kind of futurists and mm-hmm. ethicists and you know they, they talk about all that sort of stuff. And he said, many years ago, a mentor had said to him, we all sup with the devil. It's just that some of us choose to use a longer spoon. <laughs> and that's true, isn't it? You, that's a great one, you yeah. can't get away from it no matter what you do. Uh, we're not going to badmouth the Golf Society on here. They're a sponsor of the network. That's just a reality. I think most people understand that, but that's where the waters can get murky and tricky when you get to things like the distance debate. There are people there with very real, they think, you know, a lot of the manufacturers think, very real money to be lost if a certain outcome, uh, you know, if the ball is rolled back, those sorts of things. And so... That's where things get tricky. Where you need journalism the most, you might not necessarily be able to get it because you're in that conundrum where if one of the manufacturers says, if you run that story, we won't advertise, publishers generally aren't journos and will say, we'll go where the money is. What, well, question for both of you, I guess. What what do you think the sort of role of a McKellar magazine has in that landscape? Is it possible for that to be successful it's a, a very widespread. It's a very interesting experiment. Not so much on a widespread. The enthusiasm for Miguel has not been surprising, and it's been fantastic. Great golf writers writing great golf stuff with no agenda and no advertisers. Is it sustainable in the long term as a business model? That enthusiasm can often wane, and their model in particular, where it's somewhat sporadic with its release cycle. Golfers Journal is probably it's a similar example that they do have some. There's some middle ground with Golfers Journal, isn't That's it? right, and the it comes out four times a year. You know to expect it. You can subscribe to it. I worry about the McKellar model in as much as its long term sustainability to keep going back to the well every few months, saying, "Hey, we're going to do it again. We're going to do it again." People's enthusiasm can wane. I don't know. What do you think, uh, Michael? Because it, it's kind of a it's a very new old media idea, isn't it? A print magazine. That's really just about what's printed inside it. It's no yeah. ads. How old-fashioned is that? It's fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea, and I love it. I, I've read a few issues of McKellar. I just think it's tremendous. I haven't actually had the opportunity to look at the Golfer's Journal yet, but there are a lot of these types of publications around. In Scotland, we've got a football um, periodical called Nutmeg, which has been going for a good number of years now. It's probably the most successful one of these types of, of publications. It's just that sustainability, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, when it comes to publishing, advertising is always going to be king, <laughs> you know, unless you've got a, well, an incredible sugar daddy sitting there with lots of cash to throw at a, an unprofitable venture. Well, that's interesting, is it? 
Is McKellar perhaps the future? Lots of podcasts, not so much golf podcasts, but there are a lot of golf podcasts. There are a lot of podcasts. In fact, there are some very successful podcasts who make all of their money direct from the consumer through Patreon or similar sorts of ideas where you like it, give us some money. And some of them structure it as give us this much each month. And some of them just structure it as when you want to give us something, give us something, whatever amount you like. That has been successful for some, Michael. Now, podcasting is possible because the overheads are almost nil once you've bought your microphone, your mixer, and your audio host. It's easy to. You just turn up and you You just talk. turn up. It's exactly. You there's just no, turn there's up no editing or anything to just do. When someone says welcome, you just sort of, sort of speak. So podcasting's easy in that sense. You don't need a radio station, broadcasting licenses, and all that other sort of stuff. It's a bit different for print. But I wonder, Michael, as I've just said, I worry about McKellar in the long term, but if it was a little bit more organised... I wouldn't, I don't think, I wouldn't leave a full-time job at an established mainstream media organisation to go and join McKellar. They have no full-time staff. It's all freelance at this stage, and that's the loose nature of the model. I'm not sure that I would leave a full-time job to go and join. What do you, what do you think about that, Michael? The notion of cutting out the middleman. It's something I often think about because our listeners, there's not a huge amount of them, but they have certain expectations. Would they be prepared to put their hand in their pocket to get what it is that they want, which is what, what we deliver. That's why they listen. It's interesting, isn't it? Yes, I think they, they might be inclined or, I don't know, they might be tempted to do it initially, but it's sustainability in the long run. You know, it, People, and I include myself in this, will invest in something whilst it's a new, a bit of a novelty. I mean, I'm, I'm all about gadgets. So as soon as I see the latest gadget come out and I want to have it, but, you know, the the shelf life of it can run down very quickly and by the time gadget 2.0 comes out i might not be as enthused to go out and shell out a huge amount of money for it again and certainly by the time we're getting down to gadget 11.0 i probably lost all appetite for it so i think people love novelties they love to see and experiment with new things but in the long run yeah i mean you have to ask serious questions i mean would i go and leave my job and go to uh a publication like McKellar to work full-time for them? No, uh, I wouldn't. I also don't think that they would ever be in a position whereby they could do it without putting up advertising or, you know, by, by finding some pot of gold at the, the end of the rainbow. I mean, it's it's there's a lot of overheads that go with, you know, publishing. Yeah, it's, it's an expensive yeah. medium, yeah. and that's why I think people are turning more and more online. You know, you, you can if you talk about cutting out the middleman, well, one of the middlemen for publishing is... The, the guy who is printing and you know making your publication come to life. Or the that's, distribution. That's, that's the middleman there. Yeah. Yeah, McKellar's biggest cost is the distribution. So they send a huge box to Australia here to Mike Clayton, yeah. who sits there and stuffs them in envelopes and in his appalling handwriting writes addresses on them and Lord knows <laughs> where they end up because nobody could possibly read what it is that he's written on the envelope. So uh, Yeah, and that's that's why you know Royal Mail is suffering because email is uh, an, mm. an expense-free way to, to send that letter or that christmas card or whatever else it might be so the world is massively moving online i think most of it has already and that's why you know publishing in its traditional form is starting to wane if mckellar can find a way to make it work online i think that might be the long-term solution but when you've got huge overheads that come with actually creating a physical printed product yeah that that's i i just don't know how you can do it i don't, I don't see the sustainability in it I mean, I think, which is a huge shame because I love it. It, yes. it is great. I think yes. for the time being, we can just all be thankful that it exists. Absolutely, and good on Lawrence Donegan <laughs> yeah. and uh, Thomas Dunn for doing oh, it. Fantastic. Yeah. And and the truth of a, a publication like McKellar is 
it creates a job for the founder, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Even even then, I think they have to work some some other stuff. But it it can create an income of some sort for the founder, and their um, you know, and it can also exist in a way. It can exist outside of the the treadmill of mm-hmm. the rest of media. You look at Bunkered. I'm not sure you're owned by a bigger uh, a bigger media organization. But, you know, how often does that happen that, you know, a masthead gets swapped hands and mm. and suddenly it doesn't exist anymore because the accountants at the new company just don't think it's worth it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's, there's, there's- that's quite present, actually, because we were owned by a small publishing company that was founded in 95 to launch the magazine yeah. uh, up until about two years ago when we were bought over by DC Thompson, which is one of the UK's biggest publishing companies. And um, who would have no interest at all in McKellar. Like there's just nothing there for them. No. Is. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I can completely see that. I, I think that ultimately when it comes to something like McKellar, it's a brilliant idea. It's great that it exists right here in the here and now, but, you know, is there going to be a place for it five years, ten years, even two years down the line? Who knows? I'd like to think that there would be, mm-hmm. but it's it's just such a tough industry and what we're having less and less of are new startups like that in terms of physical products so if it can find a way to transition to online and be successful there then i think that is probably the 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 golden egg for the goose this ties neatly into my vision for the future of media which i haven't banged on about for a while so it's fantastic to get to roll it out again do you let, recall let me, it? let me guess do you recall it pga tour media no nope. just taking over everything no 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 that's okay. that's oh. very we're going to get to that we're going to get to that in a minute <laughs> media more like cafes There'll yeah. be a Starbucks, there'll be a Gloria Jeans, yep. there'll be a couple of places that own six or seven cafes, but for the most part, people like me and Huggy and Alistair Tate and Lawrence Donegan will have a little corner of the internet yep. where we can produce, we can work hard and produce what we produce, and those people who like that content will pay for it directly, and there'll be enough income in that. You'll work hard for it, but there'll be enough income in that to make a a living to pay your rent, your mortgage, buy your food, send your kids to school, and maybe, maybe go on a holiday one day. But I think that's more the model. It still relies, I think, Michael, that model won't work unless you have trained journalists. And then there's your next issue is who's going to train the next generation because- Yes, exactly. That's I mean, that's the, the toughest part to do. And I think when it comes to a product like that, you're- you're always going to be only as good as the last thing that you put out. Mm-hmm. And that's where not having an advertising base is always a concern. We could put out a terrible issue next time and we'll still sell advertising for the next issue after that because advertisers aren't necessarily looking at our magazine and going, oh, yeah, okay, that was a terrible issue. That article was terribly written. Didn't enjoy that. I thought that feature would have been better done like this. Advertisers aren't looking at it like that. They're going, okay, so we've got a product coming out at such and such a time. We need to make sure that we are placed in that magazine right there, front and centre, you know, a, a, a DPS advert right up at the very front. Or are you selling an ad right magazine. here on my podcast, McEwen? Is that what you're doing? Have you got somebody in mind This is Tay? Are you sending this link to somebody? I should, shouldn't I? You should, yeah. It's fantastic. I guess the, the point is that if, you know, our advertisers aren't going to worry necessarily about the editorial content really that deeply from issue to issue, whereas the reader will. So if a reader picks up a, a, a advert-free magazine, which is the dream, I suppose, for a lot of people, but they pick it up and they go, oh, I don't really enjoy that, 
they're not going to buy the next one. So immediately your reader's down. So that's where it's always a bit of a risk to rely on uh, a loyal readership from one issue to the next or whatever it might be that you end up producing. I just think that advertising is, yeah, I, I get that a lot of people don't like it, but ultimately it's it's a, a vital cog in the publishing wheel. No question. I think for print, you're hundred percent right. What you what you gain through advertising is the security of tenure to know that you're going to be able to publish the full year's worth of magazines, mm. and what you give yeah, up is can, some of what McKellar has. Hire people, which means that's exactly can, right. You can do all of those yeah. things that a business requires, mm. um, which is why I think podcasting is interesting. And as I said, because the overheads are low. Once you've set up, I mean, you can buy if you buy the right microphone, ATR twenty one hundred. For those who are wondering, you buy the right microphone, you'll never have to buy another one. It, it, it's unlikely to ever wear out. Mm-hmm. You buy. You know, one other piece of equipment that lets you get the microphone into the computer, you're essentially away, uh, and you don't ever have to. Whereas printing, as you're right, you, you, you've got to got to have somebody lay it out, which is one specialised figure. Mm-hmm. Somebody writing the stuff, you got to have somebody creating the ads, then you got to have somebody cr- printing it. There's a lot of overheads and a lot of people. It's a very labour intensive uh, sort of a process. As is television, which is uh, a big part of media. Michael, what about television's relationship? I don't. Th- I never think of television as being journalism. And particularly, I guess, in golf, where predominantly their role is to cover professional golf. But you mentioned Brandel Chambly before, anything but a trained journalist, uh, yet extremely high profile, big presidents in the media. Yeah, I would say that Brandel's not necessarily a journalist. I think that he's, he's a tremendous analyst. But what we don't get a huge amount of in terms of TV coverage of golf is that journalism. You you want someone who can report and tell a story and have a, a lot of information they can bring to it and come at it ideally from a, a place of no bias whatsoever. So, you know, Brandel will always be, with the greatest of respect, he'll probably always lean towards a particular ingrained bias that comes from having played the game for 20 years or whatever it was that he was on the, the PGA Tour for. You know, you, you'll see that with... The, you know, any ex-player as well, you know, they'll always have loyalties to something. Um, journalists, journalists by rights, should only have loyalty to the profession, which is a really hard thing to do. And I know it sounds like a bit of a cheesy thing to say, but that should really always be where, where your loyalties gravitate first and foremost. And yeah, I, th- I think that there's a place for journalism in, in TV massively. I, I, I think that sports coverage as a whole it suffers now more than ever from a lack of you know trained broadcasting or journalistic talent you, you look at the people who are hosting shows over here in the UK you know for example yeah Gary Lineker Gary Lineker took over from Des Lynham as the host of match of the day here in the UK and yeah he's, he's grown into the role but it's taken him a good 25 years to do it and off the back of his growing success and I think to be honest more so his profile the bbc and their infinite wisdom decided he was also the perfect person to start presenting their live golf coverage so you went from having a a trained experienced broadcaster a journalist by profession and steve Ryder, who could tell you everything that you needed to know about a leaderboard and what was going on and bring a bit of informed comment on what was happening at the masters for example you went from having him to having Gary Lineker, who could only really read the leaderboard. So what you got from cutaways from the live footage was and Darren Clark's at six under, and two shots behind is Stuart Sink at four under. Yeah, that's fine, but we can all see that. You know, Television's a, a visual medium as much as an auditory medium. All you're doing is telling us what we've already seen. Tell us something more. 
that's what journalists can bring to it. And sadly, they're being cut out of the picture, literally as well as figuratively. Yeah. Yeah, I want to watch that Masters, by the way. Clark at 600 and sink at 400. That's going right back, right, right back to, uh, to area. You might be the only one. May, well, there's, no, there's three of us. There's Darren and Stuart. They both want to be about at Masters as well. Uh, Tom Watson wants no part of it. Um, which brings us neatly to journalists have employers. So we as journos, and I've done this for my whole career, where all of the flack for everything from the headline, which you don't write, to the rewritten stuff inside the story, which you also didn't write, but some sub got a hold of and decided this was a better way to turn these words into this story. Uh, you're not actually in control of all of that stuff. And so some journos, some good journos, are employed by uh, organisations with a very definite agenda, the PGA Tour, Golf Australia here in Australia, although I, must, I hasten to add I think they do a terrific job of keeping their editorial independence for the most part, but the truth is that they have an employer that uh, they, they have to answer to. And that gets pretty tricky with PGA of Australia has their own- I'm sure Scottish Golf is- Scottish Golf would have its own communications department, as do the European tour. Uh, that's where it gets very tricky, doesn't it, Michael? And I wonder about this is where it comes back to who's going to train the journos of the future when it's the organisations themselves become the biggest employer. And I was at the President's Cup last year, and I can tell you that PGA Tour Communications took up most of that media centre from TV- to I think they were doing radio coverage. They had a bunch of writers there, a heap of people doing social media. They had by far the biggest presence of anybody. There's real dangers in that, I think, and I wonder whether consumers realise that. It's a very vanilla coverage of the game. You're unlikely to read much critical stuff about the PGA Tour, funnily enough, on PGAtour.com. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't think consumers understand that as, as well as they should, and they might not really understand it until it's too late. You know, It's, it's funny because you look at the PGA Tour and – even to this day, there are a lot of people on social media who will give them dogs abuse for not doing more to protect the future of the game. And as I'm blue in the face telling people, that's not why the PGA Tour exists. It's not their job to, the to create the golfers of tomorrow. It's their job to create tournaments and platforms and huge prize funds for the golfers of today. There's a reason why the company's called PGA Tour Entertainment. You know, it's, that's the business it's in. It's not in the business of you know, grassroots sport. So... Yeah, I think people have to just go into things with their eyes open and understand the source of the story, who's telling them the story, why are they telling them the story in this particular way. And I get it. There's going to be a lot of people who won't think twice about that and who don't really care as long as they're entertained and they feel like they're being informed and that'll be good enough for them. Fair enough. That, that's, that's the way of the world. I get it. But in, in terms of how you groom and train the the journalists of tomorrow I, I think it's a really hard one because i don't know what the what the landscape of you know the media industry is going to look like five ten years from now i mean when i got into when i started out with bunkered 16 years ago we just had a magazine you know that was it that's all we were that i think to be honest that's all we ever had aspirations to be then a few years into there was a, a website that came along, but that website existed just more or less as a holding page for us to sell subscriptions for our magazine. Gradually, things started to change, and then suddenly, almost overnight, things changed where it became, okay, we, we need to start taking the internet seriously. And all at once, we had uh, uh, all the social media platforms that we started using, with the exception of MySpace and Bebo and things like that. But that's because that particular realm of the industry changed very quickly too. There was aggressive growth and 
ever since it's just been this cycle of change and that makes it really hard to predict where we're going to be even a couple of years from now podcasts were something that weren't really on anybody's radar five years ago i mean yes specialists and people who are really really into it went looking for them and found them and they were there at the ground floor but now they're mainstream so what's the next thing that's going to become mainstream? That, that, that That's always the, the question that we've got to ask. So as long as there are people who are prepared to be versatile, dynamic, agile enough to embrace the change and not stand and, you know, stubbornly resist it, I, I like to think that I'm open to most change in terms of what the media can be as long as people are doing it for the right reasons, i.e. not to be famous. Uh, there are a lot of fanboys out there who are calling themselves journalists and we know who they are and they're successful at it and yeah fair play but that's not journalism and let's never confuse it for that but equally the people who are in the media right now who are journalists have got to be more agile we've got to be more dynamic and go with the flow and if we do that more people are going to come into it and we'll be in a better position to train them as opposed to losing them to the the fanboys of the world which I mean, where are we going to be if all the news is dictated to by fans? Have you not been watching? Have you not been watching twenty twenty unfold, yeah. Michael? Aren't you on, we, t- aren't you we on TikTok? Uh, have you got your TikTok, Michael? Well, this, see, none of this actually oh, matters. God, I do not. Yeah. I, I dance like a tree, yeah. so I'm never ever going to use TikTok. None of this matters in golf because golf is just entertainment, and even I, who love the game, understand that it's a first world pursuit which has no real importance. But all of these issues we're talking about are true of the broader media, and that really is a problem. Golf journos pale in significance in when compared to the role of actual journos in the world. Yeah. And there is much, much, much less of that. And more importantly, the future of that. Nobody has ever trained journos, only ever newspapers. And the demise of newspapers is not going to lead to a more healthy democracy. And we're already seeing the results of that. Regardless of which side of the political fence you want to sit on, I think we can all agree that it has become it's become a completely binary world where there seems to be almost no independent voices there's no such thing as complete objectivity it's an impossibility if you're a human but nobody's even trying anymore and that's a dangerous place for the world to be i think yeah yeah absolutely as and that's maybe that's the way the world's going to go but i'd like and maybe it's a bit of a romantic idealistic part of me that's going that it, it can't afford to happen like that because i genuinely believe it can't afford to happen like no, that because that's only going more. to create more conflict and division and, and where are we going to be couldn't agree more but it's the, the there's never i mean i genuinely I, i've used the line many times and i, I stand by it the world needs storytellers mm-hmm. you know it massively in every in every form and walk of life we need storytellers but those storytellers don't have to be selling fiction. You know, there's a great place for fact out there. Unfortunately, what fact is just tends to be whatever someone tells you as as opposed to people going out there and discovering the truth for themselves. So let's hope that that doesn't become more of a trend than it already is because the truth's hell of an important thing too. And as soon as we start losing a grip on that, what have we got left? Well, there's facts and there's alternate facts. Those are facts and statistics. Yeah. The, I think I used this last week. They're like the lamppost. They can be used to illuminate <laughs> yep. or to hold up a drunk. <laughs> Which actually, I mean, just to go back to Brandall for a moment, I really feel like he uses, he cherry picks uh, facts and stats oh, big in a way to support his argument, mm-hmm. which is the complete antithesis of of re- proper reporting. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's just, he 
finds some things to support his so argument. He's not pre- but he's not pretending to report. And he's, it's about the only thing I can say in his defence. He's not pretending to report. What he's doing is creating an identity for himself yeah. and creating news Getting about attention. himself and, yeah. and attracting attention to himself because he is now in a business where that's important. Dull Brandle doesn't necessarily keep his Golf Channel job forever. Yeah, it's important interesting Brandle to that is, business. Yeah. I don't, it's interesting how much we obsess about that there's all this industry around that, the coverage of this small part of golf. Mm. Because the the fact of the matter is, if you could do a Thanos and click your fingers and get rid of all of golf journalism instantly, golf would still go ahead. Mm. Same is true professional golf. <laughs> if you got rid of professional golf, golf would still go ahead. It, absolutely. But that yeah. doesn't mean that it's not important. To it's, it's still important. And I think what you would see emerge immediately if it if it was to restart, the things that would emerge immediately and would resonate immediately are the things that were incredibly important fifty or sixty years ago, like the Herbert Warren Wins or the Charles Price or or Bernard Darwin or somebody writing great stories mm-hmm. about golf. Are you saying that if there the, wasn't the storytellers, like Michael said, I think that's what would emerge immediately as being of high value if you got rid of all of the noise right yeah. now. Yeah. If there wasn't journalism, someone had invented. Is that what you're saying? If there wasn't journalism, <laughs> someone invented. And the thing they'd invent would be what's re- what, what's worthwhile, what's really about, worthwhile, the, the good stuff about yeah. it, not all the rubbish that we probably contribute to far too frequently, as well. Hot takes. Hot takes. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. The hot takes. Michael, it's been fascinating to talk to you on. And on this depressing note, we're probably going to leave it there. I don't know what the future is. I feel like you're young enough to think that there's hope. I'm old enough to know that it's bleak. Uh, between us, somewhere is probably a compromise that'll be a reality. But I'm, uh, I'm fascinated by what this train, know, I'm, training I'm, I'm the next total, generation. I, I genuinely am a total idealist. I think that's uh, that can either be a strength or a weakness depending on what way you want to look at it. But yeah, I, I tried to take a bit more of a, an optimistic outlook on, on what the future can be. I think, if anything, that 2020 has taught us is that if you can't be optimistic about the future, then it's going to be a hell of a long rest of your life. <laughs> it's got but, to be better than now, doesn't it? The uh, present's certainly nothing to celebrate it for the most part. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, as they said years ago, things can only get better, and I guess that's kind of the truth. But equally, you know, I'm a mid-30s guy, and I, as I've said, you know, I, I guess I'm probably not the sort of person who should look to what some people around about my age demographic would class as old man media. I just think that's such a lazy catch-all term that's designed to sound sexy and to to grab attention. You know, I I remember something that my former deputy headmaster at my school told me once, and it's stuck with me ever since. And my dad told me the same thing, which was the best writers are the most prolific readers. Mm. And so that's why I'm always going to read as hard as I possibly can and as often as I possibly can, the the great journalists who are out there already. And you know what? In a lot of cases, those guys are younger than me right now. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that the best journalists in the world are the guys who've been around and got all the experience. There's a lot of great journalists who are in their 20s right now and who are doing incredible things and doing it across all kinds of platforms, long form, short form. They can tell a story in 1,400 words as well as they can tell it in 140 characters. There's a real skill and... You know, a real skill set with that that sort of versatility. So I'm continually reading. I'm always going to keep reading because I think that's going to make me a better writer, and hopefully that's going to serve the people who do read the stuff that I put out there best. That's, I guess, that goes back again to what I said at the start about responsibility being a, a key tenet of golf. You know, it's it's one thing to be a fan, and I applaud the people who are fans and who want to share their love and enthusiasm for this game with other people. That is brilliant. That is absolutely. We, we need more people doing that. 
But please, please, please don't for a second mistake that for journalism because it's not. It's important, but it's not journalism. Beautifully said. I both applaud and deride your idealism in equal measure because I'm a hot <laughs> Michael. <so. laughs> well done to you, and thanks for taking some time to chat today, mate. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Great Not to speak to you guys. And Logue, fantastic to have you along. Have you got a golf highlight for the week? Oh, no, I didn't, I didn't have either. prepared. No, no, me either. So let's just skip it till next week. Two highlights from you next week to make up for it. That's your uh, your homework. That's when we come back for episode 54. I got the name wrong last week. Episode 51 with John Hogan. We'd already had episode 51 with Jeff Mingay, so I fixed that today. So this is episode 53. So next week will be episode 54, and we'll be here to do it all again on the Good Good Golf Podcast.